0: Okay. If you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We're finally out of chapter 8. Aren't you guys happy we're finally out of chapter 8? We parked at chapter 8 for quite a while. There a couple of Sundays I wasn't here and other people filled in and we had some testimony and chapter 8 was just longest. long as trying to take it a bite at a time. That's kind of been my strategy as we go through it. I mean, There may be times we'll do a whole chapter. Usually it's just a a few verses, a chunk, a paragraph, where it seems like the story is somewhat contained. It's it's a digestible bite. And there have been a few times we've just done a verse at a time. Today we're going to go through the first 12 verses of, of chapter 9 in John's Gospel. So if you would follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Sil- Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed, came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he said himself, he insisted, I'm the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth that's in your word. Lord, I ask that you, the light of your spirit, that the spirit of truth would illuminate your word for us today, that we would be able to see with greater clarity, the truth that's there, release, I pray, wisdom, release understanding, that your, your truth, the truth that's in your word, could take root in our hearts and have its full impact on us. Amen? So, Jesus gives sight to this man born blind, this, this man's healed. In verses 1 and 2, uh, the disciples ask a question, right, as he went along. He saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, for the first time in a while, we have an honest question here. It's a question without hidden agenda. It's a true question. It's not a veiled trap. All the questions that the Pharisees have been asking, they've been trying to position him so that they could get the upper hand in the dialogue, so they could win the debate, so that they could look good and make him look bad. So for the first time, in quite a while, we're finally out of chapter 8, we got a real question, a true, honest question, and it's not from the Pharisees, it's from Jesus' disciples. Rabbi, who sinned? This man, or, or his parents, who was, that he was born blind. So the disciples looked at this man born blind, and what they saw was a mystery. They saw an unsolved theological puzzle Some kind of riddle. Jesus looked at at this man and he saw a man who was suffering. He saw someone who needed relief. The disciples had saw this man and they made some assumption. And the assumption is basically this. I think sometimes we make this assumption. That ordinary suffering is the result of ordinary sin. But extraordinary suffering is the result of extraordinary sin. right? Anybody ever put that label on you? You've gone through a hard time, and they're thinking, must be some secret sin in your life. You know? I was diagnosed with cancer. I'm pastoring a church. I have people asking me, so there must be some unrepented sin in your life, brother. I'm thinking, it's bad enough I have cancer. Now you're going to come and make me feel bad, too. Can I just punch you right in the face? That's all I'm doing. <laughs> Where's the ministry of love and compassion there? I'm betting up, I'm sick. You gotta make me feel guilty? I mean, dude. Well, sometimes people they suffer in an extraordinary way, and the assumption is, well, there must be something really dark, really sinful, really wicked, you know, beneath the surface. So like like many of us today, the disciples assumed that this man's disability was the result of sin, either his sin or his parents' sin. Now, if it's his sin, I mean, you just think about this for a second. If it was actually the man's sin, the man who's born blind, that means he would have sinned from the womb. What can you do in the womb? I mean, what can you possibly do? What sin could you commit from the womb, right? Nothing. I mean, I don't know. If you were a twin, you could beat up your twin. I don't know. Other than that, what could you possibly do from the womb? But this is the mindset. It's odd, isn't it? What's oddest still, what's sadder still is we hold on to them in that mindset ourselves today. So Jesus responds to their question. Verses 3 to 5. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now we've talked about I am the light of the world before. I'm not going to go into a whole I am section today, but I want to take a different I want to take a different look at this. I read those verses, especially verse 3. I have trouble with verse 3. Neither this man sinned nor his parents, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. What? What is going on here? Is Jesus saying that God blinded this man from birth so that at some later date, Jesus could look good by healing him? Is that what this text is saying? And I'm thinking, if that's true, then it's not cool. (laughs) I got a problem with that. I got a problem with a God who would blind an innocent child from the womb only so he could look good, he could look better later on. And at first reading, it kind of sounds like that's what God did. I'm going to have a hard time trusting that God. How about you? I'm going to have questions about that God. I'm going to have doubts about that God. If this is what Jesus is saying, it calls into question both God's goodness and God's love. What good and loving father would blind their son from birth just to make themselves look good at some later date? What loving father would do that? Now look, all of us here, no one has escaped this. Every one of us have faced some kind of challenge. In life. I'm going to let that question hang there for a minute. We'll come back. Well, we've all faced challenges. We've gone through good times. We've gone through bad times. We know mountains. We know valleys. When scripture talks about the valley of the shadow of death. Some of us know intimately what that valley looks like and smells like and feels like. Some of us have faced serious illness or the death of a loved one. Broken relationships the loss of a job, financial difficulties, worse. We've all faced stuff. In those dark days, it's easy for us to return to what Wayne Jacobson refers to as daisy-pedal Christianity. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Things are good. He loves me. Things are bad. He loves me not. Things are good. He loves me again. Things are bad. Oh, he doesn't love me. Anybody ever been there? Okay. At least one person here is honest today. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. <laughs> a life of faith, a life of trusting God. And I've told you for, for months now, when we hear faith in the Gospel of John, it means trust. A life of faith, a life of trust, views circumstances differently. Because if you think about it, we don't really need trust. We don't need to trust God in the good times. Things are good. We're on the mountaintop. Everything's coming together. I mean, it would be good to trust him, but it's not quite as necessary. It's not quite as essential. But when you're in the valley, when you're on the pedals that say he loves me not, when you're in those dark times, when the circumstances are rough, man, that's when you need to trust. That's when you need to trust the goodness of God. That's when you need to trust the love of God. I mean, that's when trust is priceless. It's it's in those bad times. Let me give you a biblical example from from Mark chapter 4, beginning of verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go to the other side. Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, uh, they took him along, uh, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and waves. He said, be quiet, be still, and the winds died down, and it was completely calm. He says to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now take note. It was Jesus' idea to sail to the other side of the lake. And as they were obediently doing what God told them to do, this furious storm comes up. And in the midst of the storm, while they're doing what Jesus told them to do, and they're, and they're terrified by this storm. Now these are some seasoned fishermen. They've been on the water. Could you imagine how furious this storm must be if you've got some professional fishermen out there that are terrified? It must have been pretty nasty storms. So in the midst of doing what God told them to do, this storm arises. And what's Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. Jesus is sleeping. Ever felt that way? You're in the midst of a horrible storm and, hey, Jesus, <laughs> where are you? Feels like he's sleeping in, in the boat, right? The circumstances are not good. I mean, even though they've obeyed God, they're doing what God told them to do, they're in bad circumstances. Like I said, these men, they're with Jesus. It's not like they walked away from God. They're in the boat together. I mean, unless they snuggle next to him on the cushion, they ain't much closer they could get than being on the same boat with him in the middle of this storm. They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, and they find themselves in a life-threatening circumstance. And because of their circumstances, the disciples wake up Jesus, and they accuse him of not caring about them. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. Just a little rabbit trail. It makes me wonder. He rebukes the wind and the waves. Is that demonic activity that he was wrestling with then? I don't know. Could be. Were they, was creation out of order because sin had entered into the world and Jesus spoke to it? The same one who said, who said let there be light and out of nothing created everything. He spoke to the wind and the waves that were behaving out of order and they came into right order. I don't know. Rabbit trail. That could be a whole other sermon. Either way, the storm calmed, right? So Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, and then he addresses the issue of trust. He says, do you still have no faith? In other words, don't you trust me yet? I was the one who said we're going to go to the other side. I told you to do this. We're doing this together. It's not so much an issue of, of comprehension of doctrine. Or the issues of faith when he says, do you still have no faith? This is personal. He's saying, don't you trust me? The circumstances are bad. I understand. I got this. You still don't trust me? Jesus' response in in, in essence is this. If you were convinced of my goodness and my love for you, you would have trusted me no matter what the circumstances were. Now, these were real circumstances. This was an actual storm. It was a dangerous storm. It was a life-threatening storm. It terrified professional fishermen. And Jesus' response to the circumstances is, don't you trust me? So I said all that to say this. I trust God. I trust God. I choose to trust God. Trust is established by good behavior multiplied by time. And God has a track record of centuries, (laughs) millennia, of good behavior. He has time and again proven himself trustworthy. He's done it throughout human history. He has time and again proven himself trustworthy in my own life. Now, there are times in my journey where he told me, get in the boat and go to the other side, and we've hit storms along the way. There's been bad circumstances. You've had them too. But I still trust God. I have what I call Tom Sawacky's two undeniable truths of the universe. There might be a slide for that. And I've shared these with you before. If you have written these down, you want to. I recommend memorizing them. Truth number one. God is good. Undeniable truth of the universe. Firmly established, unshakable, set in my heart and my mind. Number one, God is good. Number two is God loves me. Those are the two undeniable truths of the universe. With those firmly set in place, everything else begins at number three. The circumstances of life begin at number three. The furious storms begin at number three. A man born blind, blind from birth, Begins at number three. I choose. And this is, this is my trusting in God. This is my, my step of faith. That regardless of the circumstances. I choose to, to hold on to these unshakable truths. That God is good and God loves me. I refuse to judge God's goodness and his love for me by the, my circumstances. Instead, by faith. Trusting God, I choose to examine my circumstances in light of these two established, unchangeable truths of the universe. That God is good. And God does love me. Now with those two truths firmly in place, I believe that God is good. Period. That's never going to change. He's never going to be anything other than good. I believe that God loves me because scripture says he is love. And there's no shadow, there's no changing in him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is love. Now, knowing those two things are true, I look at John chapter 9, verse 3, with different eyes. I cannot look at that verse and examine it from the position of, does this call into question God's goodness or his love? With those two truths firmly in place, I'm thinking there's got to be some other answer. So I dig deeper. I dig much deeper. I study. I look more closely. I look for the whole counsel of Scripture. I see what is, what is actually going on here. Because sometimes, things get lost in the translation. Nadine speaks French. She was born in, in Haiti. And while, while we were dating, I'd go to her house, and, and French, uh, French or, or Haitian Creole was the primary language in her house. Um, and I didn't understand it. I mean, after a while, we were dating together. I could pick up body language and tone of voice and facial expression and kind of pick up a little bit here and there. But every once in a while, somebody would tell a joke and they would all laugh. And I'd say to Nadine, like, what was that? She's like, oh, it loses it in translation. Well, that really does happen sometimes when we, when we read scripture. The, the, the way culture has evolved over hundreds of years The the meaning of words. Meanings of words have changed in my lifetime. Something that had one meaning as a child, now as an adult has an entirely other meaning. Every year they add new words to the dictionary. So it's possible that things get lost in the translation. Especially, I want to look for that, if it calls into question those two undeniable truths of the universe. If it calls into question God's goodness or God's love, are you with me? You're tracking. This is helpful. (laughs) Because in the dark times, in the hard times, when your world is crashing in, when you're in the boat and the the water's coming up over the sides, that's not the time when you want to have concerns and questions and fears and doubts about whether or not God's good and he loves you. That's when you're going to jump overboard. The issue of whether or not he's trustworthy, it's helpful if that gets established before you're in the midst of the storm. Because you'll need that. That's already got to be in your pocket. It's got to be firmly rooted in your heart for when those dark days come. So back to verse 3. Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's as if Jesus' answer was, I'm not here to answer such questions. I'm here to do the work of God by alleviating this man's suffering. I like to read other translations. I I like to read paraphrases. And one of my favorites the last few years has been Eugene Peterson's The Message. There are times he'll describe things that I think just gives us enough of a little different angle to illuminate fuller truth that's there. Peterson gets it well, I think, in John chapter 9, verses 3 to 5. Let me read it to you. Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There's no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here. Working while the sun shines. When night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I am in the world, there is plenty of light. I am the world's light. Let me read that first part again. You're asking the wrong questions. I think there are times we're in the midst... Of our storm and we're asking the wrong questions (laughs) he says you're looking for someone to blame that sounds pretty common when we're in the midst of our hard times whose fault is this who did this to me Jesus says concerning this man born blind Jesus says there's no such effect here he says look instead for what God can do so instead of looking for who to blame for the bad circumstances Look for the good that our good and loving God can do in the midst of those bad circumstances. That's pretty much what Jesus is saying here. So, as you know, as many of you know, I've, I've faced bad circumstances in life. So have you. Some of you are in bad circumstances now. I can honestly tell you, in my darkest days, in my deepest valleys, I have never found it to be helpful, to question the goodness of God or his love for me in the midst of my bad circumstances. Nothing good has ever come from that. When I'm in the midst of my bad circumstances, I'm questioning his love or his goodness. You know what happens? It only leads to hopelessness. It leads to fears. Like not only am I in this bad situation, but God's mad at me. It's like the guy who comes up and says, oh, is there some secret sin in your life? I want to punch them in the face. Go away. You're not helping me. What I need at those times is to remind myself of God's goodness and his love. I need people to remind me of his goodness and his love. Jesus said that he he came to give us good news. The fact that he's good, the fact that he loves us, that's that's good news. That's very good news. So I've I've never found it helpful to question his his love or his goodness. It's only led me to hopelessness and fear. Uh, But I have found it priceless pricelessly helpful to trust his goodness and his love no matter what my circumstances are. I've also found it helpful to read and study scripture from the perspective of God being both good and loving, and that's exactly what I choose to do right here in John chapter 9, verse 3. A commentator I use often, David Guzik says of verses 3 and 4 in John 9, Actually, let me read the King James of it first. Guzik studies from from the King James Version. So he he takes the verses from the King James and then he questions the punctuation. He said, Jesus answered, this is King James Version, verse 3, Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, this is not a sin issue. This guy born blind, it's not sin. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Guzik asked this question. Is it possible that John 9, 3 could be punctuated like this? Uh, Neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned, period. But that the works of God should be revealed in him, comma, I must work. God must work. So that the works of God can... Jesus must work so that the works of God can be revealed. In other words, this has nothing to do with sin in the family. I must work so that the works of God will be revealed in this man's life. God didn't create the illness, but he is providing the cure. Do you see the difference? God didn't create the problem, but he is providing the solution. That God... I can trust. That God, I can have confidence in. So Jesus, the disciples want to know why this man's born blind, and Jesus, as he's accustomed to doing, he refuses the premise of the question, and, but addresses the heart of the matter. Watch what I can do while I'm still with you. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. The night is coming when no one can work. Well, I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Then Jesus goes on, and he does the Father's work. Verses 6 and 7. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin. So the man went, washed, came back seeing. So here we have Jesus doing exactly what he said he'd come to do. He's opening blind eyes. In Luke four verses eighteen and nineteen, Jesus uh, begins his public ministry. This is his, he goes into the temple and they hand him the scroll and it's Isaiah sixty one and Jesus reads it. It's as if it was his mission statement. Luke four eighteen and nineteen, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor that's good news that's all good news and he and Jesus Jesus did what he said he came to do and he did it in the most unusual way he spits on the ground makes a little bit of mud with the saliva puts it in the guy's eyes could you imagine if i tried that on a sunday morning let's see let's sweep the floor we'll get a little bit of dust and dirt that's on the floor (laughs) I'll spit in it who's got some eye problems come up and I'll put this in your eye (laughs) it's interesting to note that in this miracle Jesus took all the initiative the blind man didn't come to Jesus he didn't ask to be healed Jesus went to him Jesus told him to go and wash and he did and as usual And as unusual as it is, you can't argue with the results. This is a pretty weird way to heal somebody who's blind, wouldn't you say? Holy spit. Holy spit, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So why did Jesus do it this way? Why did he do it like this? Why did he make mud out of spit, rub it in the guy's eyes, and then tell him to go wash, he could be healed? Well, that's a good question, I'm glad you asked. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. I like Jesus' creativity. I like that he didn't utilize some formulas or systems or methods. He simply did what he saw the Father doing. And apparently what he saw the father doing this day was spitting mud and rubbing on the guy's eyes. Well, how do we know that that's what the father was doing? The guy could see. It worked. I mean, it was weird, but it worked. <laughs> he saw what the father was doing and he did it. You now, one of the issues I have with modern day Christianity, man, is we love to package and market. And sell success. I mean, if something happens, God breathes even a little bit on something. Somebody's going to write a book. They're going to put out a DVD set. They're going to have some program that you can follow so you could have their success too. And people are so desperate. <laughs> they, they buy into this stuff. And often, too often, they walk away disappointed. Jesus didn't come up with a religious system. Listen to me. Jesus did not come to establish what we call Christianity. He did not come to establish a new religious system. He came to establish a relationship. That's why he came. (laughs) He came offering a relationship. He didn't come offering mud ministry for opening blind eyes. He offered us a relationship with the Father so that we too could see what the Father's doing and do it with him. That's what he came to offer does that make sense? So the neighbors react to the man who's healed. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Is this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. The others said, No, he only looks like the man. But he insisted himself, He said, I am the man. How then were your eyes open? They asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus. Made some mud, put it in my eyes. He told me to go wash. I went and washed and I could see. Where is this man? I don't know. The neighbors see it and think it's too good to be true. It seems too amazing to believe. But the man's convinced. He convinces them and tells them that he, in fact, is the very man that they've known who was blind. That he was indeed healed from congenital blindness. I find this interesting to note. At this point, the man knows very little about Jesus. He's not one of his followers. Apparently, all he knows about Jesus at this point is his name. (laughs) And that was more than enough. There really is power in the name of Jesus. So, as we look at these first 12 verses of John chapter 9, what is Charlottetown Community Church's Monday morning takeaway? Well, like I've been telling you for almost two years now, God's ways are not our ways. And his ways may offend us. Could you imagine... If you went to some healing revival, some, some evangelist comes to town or some, somebody who claims to have you know, healing, you know, the gifts of healing and miracles, and you bring a friend who's blind and he makes dirty mud with his spit and rubs it in the guy's eyes, might you be offended? Might you feel protective of your friend thinking, hey dude, it's bad enough he's blind, you know his eyes can get infected if you stick your spit and mud in his eye? might be offended at that, right? That might be the natural reaction. But this was God. God did it that day. That's what he did that day. It was unconventional. It was outside the box. It wasn't the way we would do things, but it was absolutely the way God was doing stuff that day. You might be thinking to yourself, it's bad enough the guy's blind. Do you have to publicly humiliate him by rubbing mud in his eyes? Not many of us would appreciate having mud made with spit rubbed in our eyes. Some would look at how Jesus did this miracle and strongly object to it. Because it would offend our sensibilities, our sense of of logic or reason or understanding. We'd say it was offensive, inadequate, insulting, physically harmful. But it was actually God that day, guys. That's how God did it. That's how God worked that day. And it worked. It really was God. So here's the key. Here's the key to this this whole story. Like Jesus, we need to be able to see what the Father's doing. I don't want to develop Charlottetown Community Church mud ministry. I have no ambition for that. That's not my goal. I don't want to write books on mud ministry. <laughs> yes, we'll use red pi dirt, especially anointed. I mean, we laugh, but, oh my God. Save me, Jesus. Biting my tongue. I don't want to develop a mud ministry. What I do want, I want to see. I want to hear spiritually what the Spirit of God's doing. And then I want to go and do it with him. And more than that, I feel like part of my calling is to train and equip others to perceive for themselves what God's doing. To perceive it accurately. And then from there to go and do it. With humility. And in love. So how do we get there? How do we get from here to there? Well, one of the ways we get there is we don't do mud ministry. What we do instead is we do what Jesus came to offer to us. We cultivate relationship. We cultivate relationship between him and us. Intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father, the one who loves us lavishly and extravagantly. When we're intimate with him, we get to see what he's doing. We spend time in his presence. Told a couple of people this story this week. <clears throat> and I was about 12 years old. We moved into a new neighborhood. Matter of fact, my father's still in that same house in Brooklyn to this day. And we were living there for a few months, and, and some kids down the block were having a party and they invited me and my brother to go to it. We were like 12, 13 years old. And so this is the first time we were gonna be go to a girl-boy party, right? It was gonna we going to be girls at this party. So we're excited and nervous all at the same time. Plus, we're literally the new kids on the block. And so we get all dressed up. We go over to the party. It's in, the, it's in this people's basement. They got music playing. They got soda. They got potato chips. And so there was, and there was dancing. And so some fast dancing. And then later on in the night, the music got a little bit slower. And there was slow dancing. The first time in my life, I slow danced with a girl. I was pretty happy about it, I must say. <laughs> So we had a particular time, we had to be home, and I get back to the house, and my mother's still up, but she's interested. She wants to know how things went, right? She wants to make sure her kids are okay, and she wants to hear the story. And so how did it go? And so we're kind of sheepishly giving her little answers, but, you know, we we're, we're, we had a good time, and we were happy, but we don't have much to say. And, and so uh, my mother says, so, um, you know, was there music? And we we're like, yeah, yeah, there's music. And so did you guys dance? And... Um, and we kind of said, yeah, there was some dancing. My mother says, you danced with Teresa Chappatine. You slow danced with her, didn't you? I was like, were you looking in the window? How did you know? How could you possibly know I was dancing with her? She said, because you smell just like her. <laughs> you well, know, She doused herself in whatever perfume she would wear. She we said, you smell just like her, because we, we slow danced together. You know what? That's what it's like with Jesus. We want to spend time into his presence until we smell like him. That his aroma gets rubbed off on us. We don't have to tell anybody we've been in his presence. It goes before us. It's clear that we've been in his presence. When's the last time you had that kind of embrace with Jesus? When's the last time you, in your own way, slow danced with him? So much so that he rubs off on you. That's what I want. I want to lead you into a place where you have intimacy with him, where you can hear from him, where just like Jesus, you could see what the Father's doing. And when you see it, you could take leaps of faith to do it with him. We don't need mud ministry. We need people who smell like Jesus. We need people who walk with him in such a way that he's rubbed off on them. And that just like Jesus could see what the Father's doing, we could see what the Father's doing. This is what we need. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. Jesus went back to the Father and he sent us the Holy Spirit as our helper. How do we in this day as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you and I see what the Father is doing? We do it by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. This is how we do it. We, we cannot live what Jesus came to offer without the Holy Spirit. It's tempting It's easier to just come up with systems and organizations and structures. It's easy. It's not right. It's not God. But all too many churches in North America, we do church without God. He doesn't show up, it don't matter. I'm not content with that. Not only do I want to be intimate with him, I want him to show up and have his way. We sang today. Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. Oh God, it's a cry of my heart. I come before you on behalf of my friends and I say, Lord, you are welcome. Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. And you're welcome to be Lord of lords and King of kings in this place. Lord, you're welcome to come and make a mess in this place. As the pastor of this church, I come boldly before your throne of grace. And Lord, I say, I don't care if you make a mess. Come and make a mess. I would rather a mess with you than order without you. How about you? So I've told people I just end with this. I want to do five things with my life. Number one, I want to be a friend of God. I want to be an intimate friend of God. I want to know him like he's my best friend. I want to be known as a friend of God. The second thing I want to do is I want to comprehensively experience God's extravagant love for me. The Word says that He loves me with a great and lavish love. I want to know that love. I want to know that love more than here. I need to know that love deep down in here. I want to experience, comprehensively experience His extravagant love for me. The third thing I want to do is I want to love people as extravagantly as I've been loved. That sounds like a good number three, don't it? I can only do that once I've experienced his extravagant love. I feel I know this is true of me. Maybe it's true of you. When I haven't been his, experiencing his extravagant love, man, I'm cranky. I'm irritable. I'm impatient. I'm intolerant. I'm nasty. I'm a son of a gun to live with. Maybe he'll tell you. But when I've experienced his love, when I've tasted When I've drank of his love for me, my ability to persevere and to endure is just astonishing. My ability to extend mercy and grace, it's supernatural. Fourth thing I want to do is I want to introduce my extravagantly loving friend to everyone I know. I want to go about telling good news. And the fifth thing I want to do is I want to help others experience this ongoing love affair for themselves. That's my desire for you. Next week will be two years that Nadine and I live on the island. That's been the passion. That's been my heart cry since I've been here. I want you to know God. I want you to know God in a personal, intimate, experiential way. I'm not at all content that you would know him intellectually, academically. That has not satisfied me. It's not sustained me, and I'm convinced it will not satisfy and sustain you in the long haul. You need to be touched by Him. You need to experience Him. So let's pray. Why don't we stand and pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. You are welcome in this place, Holy Spirit. We welcome you in this place, O God. Lord, just like we sang this morning, make us now, in these moments, make us more aware of your presence. Make us more aware. Peel back, Lord, the calluses. Peel back the numbness. Peel back the dullness. Peel back the distractions so that we could actually feel you right now. We could feel your touch. That we could experience your presence. Do it, Lord. Do it, Jesus.